Let's pray. Father, it's my first prayer this morning that where there is true believing faith in this room, that you would only make that more sure for these individuals, that you would, by your spirit, confirm with our spirit that we are children of God. And I pray, God, that you would, where there's true faith, protect that. But beyond that, Lord, where there are shells of defective faith sitting in deceived assurance this morning, I pray that you would cause it to crumble. And by the power of your word and the penetrating of your spirit, you would save deceived people from the fire. That you would cause people who, who think they see to be awakened for the first time in their life today. It is a massive request, but you, Lord, are a good God and all-powerful God, and you can do it. And so I pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's Holy and Perfect Word to John chapter 2 and verse 23. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of John. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this wonderful gospel. And today we come to John 2, starting verse 23. This morning we're looking at three simple verses. This is actually the shortest section of John that I'll cover in the whole book as I preach through it. Three slow, intentionally focused verses. These three verses are about believing in Jesus. But they're not just about merely believing in Jesus. These three verses are about a more specific problem. These three verses focus on the wrong type of belief in Jesus. Now why would I want to focus on three verses alone that detail a wrong type of belief in Jesus? Well, the burden that I feel in a context like this is a distinct one, I think, that is felt most in Bible Belt USA. What do I mean by that? Every region of the globe that we call Earth, that we live on, presents, each region presents a distinct challenge to gospel preaching. Everywhere the gospel is preached, there are challenges. Why? Because we are, we are men preaching to, to 
dead people who, unless God works through the power of his spirit and the preached gospel of his word, unless he works, people will remain dead in their sin and have no love and affection for God. So that's the challenge all across the world where the gospel is preached, that, that dead people don't want to hear it. But then each region presents its own distinct, unique challenges as well. It's each, let's say, distinctive stench of deadness. So for example, a gospel challenge in the secularized UK, like in Scotland that a team from our church just went and visited, one of the challenges there, when a preacher preaches the gospel, the challenge is don't ignore Jesus. In a society like that that has moved on from Christianity for quite some time now, the challenge is don't ignore Jesus. But in another context, like a more Islamic-dominated region, the challenge is a bit different. The challenge of the preacher in that context is don't devalue Jesus. Uh, Muslims happily recognize Jesus. They're not ignoring him. The problem is they don't value him as they should. And so the, the challenge for the preacher is don't devalue Jesus. You take another context like Western United States, North England, United States regions that have largely become more hostile to the things of God. That's slowly happening around here as well. It's coming. But in regions where they're hostile more to the faith, the challenge is don't mock Jesus. Examine his life. Take him seriously. Look into what his word says. Don't write him off. And still in other regions, the house three billion people of our world, which by the way, this week I saw that the world population hit the eight billion mark and yet there's still three billion people who have never even heard the name of Jesus and the challenge for the preacher there is, have you heard of Jesus? But what about our region? What is the distinct challenge, the distinct burden that I feel when I preach the gospel in our region known as Bible Belt USA, where South Carolina is often called the buckle? The challenge is not so much don't ignore Jesus, don't devalue Jesus, don't mock Jesus, although all those are true. Now the challenge I find myself issuing with the gospel call more than any other is don't assume Jesus. Don't assume him. Where we have generational knowledge of the gospel here. The challenge is <laughs> just because your family is believers in Jesus it's so easy to assume, well, that's me, that's mine. I'll wear the coat and the label and I'll wear it as my own. And the challenge is don't assume it. Don't assume Jesus. And the reason I've decided to drill down on these three verses in particular is because in these three verses, John hits a context just like ours right in the nose with the reality. And the reality is this. It is possible to believe in Jesus, but have Jesus not believe in you. 
It is possible to believe in Jesus, but have Jesus not believe in you. This is the challenge that sits on all of our chests this morning. So we say we believe. Unless you think this is just a, a southern pastor, Bible belt, hobby horse, it's not. John, the gospel author here, drills on this subject. So you say you believe. And John would have us know it's possible to believe in Jesus but have Jesus not believe in you. So may God work in his spirit and cause all of us to examine our hearts carefully as I read John chapter 2 verse 23 and following. Now when he was in Jerusalem, this is speaking of Jesus, was he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. If you think that it's strange that I would preach a sermon on faulty faith, defective belief in a context where most people say they believe, if you think that's strange, well, let me just tell you, the very first time I preached this sermon, this, not this particular sermon, but this particular text was in my homiletics class in seminary where I had to preach to a room full of men training to be pastors. And the challenge, I didn't word it exactly like in this sermon, but the challenge of the text was still the same. To look at these men training to be pastors and say, you can believe in Jesus, but have Jesus not believe in you. It was a little bit intimidating. I have six questions that will guide us through our engagement with this text. Question number one, what is the surprise of the text? What's the surprise? Every story has a problem. Every uh, plot has a twist. What is the surprise of this section of John? Well, let me remind you what John's doing. Overall, the author of John, he's told us, John chapter 20, you can go to the end of his book, John 20 verse 30. He says, my goal is this. I'm writing these about these signs that Jesus did so that you will, what? Do you remember? Believe. That's, a, that's the word. Hang on to the word. I'm writing these things so you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's goal from writing this entire gospel is this. He wants you to see what Jesus did, and as you see what Jesus did, you'll believe that he's the Son of God, and by believing he's the Son of God, you'll have life in his name. It sounds simple. It is simple, and yet John throws these three verses in here. It's been what's happening so far. See the signs of Jesus, believe he's the son of God, believe and have life in his name. So you remember at the beginning of John chapter two where we were a few weeks ago, Jesus performs a miracle at the wedding. He turns water into wine. It's his first public miracle. And do you remember, not everybody saw it, but who saw it? The disciples saw it. And John says, the disciples when they saw it, they believed in Jesus. And then at the end of, toward the end of chapter two, where we were most recently, 
Jesus cleanses the temple. He's in there and he finds people making this father's house a house of trade instead of a house of prayer. And he just makes a whip and he drives them all out. And at the end of that section, it says the disciples remembered that zeal would consume him for his father's house. And when they remembered that, it says they believed. They saw the water turn to wine. We believe. They saw zeal for my father's house. We believe. This is exactly what John said he wanted to happen. It's exactly going according to plan. See Jesus do powerful stuff and seeing all of that leads to belief in his name and believing leads to life. And it seems straightforward enough until verse 24 of John chapter 2 when Jesus pulls the emergency brake. Verse 23, many believed in his name. Praise the Lord. It's going according to plan. It's working. Verse 24, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That's the surprise of this text, is it not? And we expect. They see the signs, they believe, and they have life. And the text says, many believed in his name, and yet now Jesus does not entrust himself. We would almost expect John to pull Jesus aside and say, Jesus, you know, here's the plan. They're supposed to see you do that. They're supposed to believe. You're supposed to receive them. And Jesus says, I'm not giving myself to them. He does not entrust himself to them. He, he stiff arms them. Now that word entrust, he did not entrust himself. You see it in verse 24. It's interesting that entrust word in, in the Greek is the same root word as many believed in verse 23. So in essence, the text is saying the people believed, but Jesus did not believe. Believe and trust, same root word. Many believe, Jesus did not entrust. Many believe, Jesus did not believe. Hence the surprising point of this text. It's possible to believe in Jesus like they did, but have Jesus not believe in you. And the big question comes, why does he do that? What's the problem? Something's wrong. It's the surprise of the text. The pattern of Jesus leading to, of seeing Jesus and it leads to faith in Jesus and leads to eternal life with Jesus. It's broken and, and, and it's now our task to figure out in this text what, what's wrong. Question number two. Is believe, that word believe, a good way to talk about responding to Jesus? Should we use that language? Now, I ask this question because we might be tempted to think, well, these people, John says they believed, but then Jesus didn't give himself to them, and so maybe we shouldn't use that language. Maybe there's something wrong with believe. But actually, the language of believing is not the problem. 
Believe is actually a really good biblical word. It's a good way to talk about how to respond to Jesus. We know this because the Bible uses it just one chapter. I mean, when we finish this text and the next week we'll get into John chapter 3. John loves the word believe. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that whosoever, that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever what? Believes. You know that. Also John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. It's a good word. John says you want to avoid condemnation? Believe in Jesus. If you don't believe in Jesus, John says you're condemned already. It's how the Bible talks about responding to Jesus. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. It's a good word. You want eternal life? Believe in the Son. John loves this word. Believe is a fine word. But here's what we need to remember. Believe in the Bible is always surrounded by further context of the passage. Which means believe all by itself, standing on its own lexical terms, isn't all that helpful. I mean, for example, you could walk up to someone on the street. Hey, buddy, do you believe in Jesus? A simple yes doesn't tell you that much. Why? Yes, I believe he existed. Well, yes, I believe he was a good person, a good teacher, even a wonderful miracle performer. Yes, I believe. I even believe, yes, I believe he died. In each case, none of those people have saving belief. Believe by itself doesn't go very far. In fact, James chapter 2 verse 19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Which means when the daughter comes home and she's found the guy of her dreams and mom and dad's a little skeptical and she says, he believes in Jesus. Well, the dad says, well, honey, all that tells me is he might be a demon. <laughs> Are you Right? be a demon even the demons believe you see believe all by itself doesn't get us very far concerning saving faith we must be careful to define what we mean by believe because it's often kind of a catch-all religious word it's easily thrown around. It's easily just worn as your own. Easily diluted to the point that Jesus doesn't even recognize it. In fact, he sees it and he says, that's not belief and I'm not giving myself to it. In 1952, Albert Schweitzer won the Nobel Peace Prize for a work that he wrote concerning his philosophy of global ethics. Basically, he won a really fancy award for writing something that most commoners didn't understand, but the elite of the day said, this is, this is really good for global ethics and we're gonna give you an award for it. Now, 
I, don't, I didn't read it. I probably wouldn't understand it myself. But Schweitzer was often referred to as a Christian during his day. Even though Schweitzer himself admitted, I'm really an agnostic. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really know either way. I can't, can't be sure. And the question became, well, can the church claim this Nobel Peace Prize winner? I mean, we love finding someone of, of fame and saying, well, he's a Christian or she's a Christian. And so can the church in 1952 claim this Nobel Peace Prize winner? That was the question. There was even a prominent article published in the British Weekly with that question being the headline, Is Schweitzer a Christian? And the answer seems very clear to me. I mean, should someone confess to being agnostic? <laughs> uh, it's clear, but nevertheless, the article continued and the, the author of the article concluded this, quote, life is bigger than intellect. Schweitzer had the spirit of Christ and anyone who has that is a Christian regardless of what is believed or disbelieved. Anyone who has the spirit of Christ is a Christian regardless of what is believed or disbelieved. See how easily that word's just thrown about? See, the danger this text wants to draw your attention to lest any such article or philosophy of thinking lead you astray is this. There is such a thing as a faulty belief. Defective belief, just and it just flashes over the content of this gospel like a bridge out up ahead sign. At the very beginning of this gospel, that the gospel is all about believe. G John loves the word believe. John wants to make sure that you don't miss this point. Yes, belief is necessary, and yes, belief leads to life, but we had better take note of what true belief is. So believe is a good biblical word. But let's make sure we use it as Jesus does. Question number three. <clears throat> what was wrong with their type of belief? The people believe, but Jesus doesn't commit himself to them. He turns away, he rejects them, he does not entrust himself. The question becomes why? What's the problem? I mean, I want to know the problem because I believe in Jesus and I don't want to have the problem they had. The signs of Jesus were always meant to point people to himself and not merely the signs. Look at the text. Why do they believe? Many, verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. The signs were always meant to point people to him and not merely just the signs. The point is not, look how cool. Walking on the water, multiplying the bread, raising the dead. I mean, those are amazing signs. But the point was, he did them. He walked on water. He multiplied the bread. He rose from the dead. He did it, which means he's the Christ. He's the son of God. The point was the person, not the performance. But the people were more impressed with the sign. 
than they were with the Savior. As one commentator put it, quote, they had the kind of belief that stopped at wonder and never got to commitment. These people had the problem of seeing the sign and the sign won their affection and Jesus didn't. They had the same problem as the people standing watching that astounding tightrope walker. So you've heard the story, I trust. It's told many different ways, but the same principle rings true. The traveling tightrope walker, amazing one community after another. He comes into town. This town is no different. He stretches out his line over the highest and deepest canyon and a small group gathers around below on nice stable ground and they're watching him. What's he planning to do? And then he gets up on top of the line and they all gasp. What's he going to do? Walk across. He doesn't even have a harness on. And he walks across. And the small group, nervously watching below, erupt in applause at the amazing feat. But for the performer, he's just getting started. And the crowd only gets bigger the more he does. Every trip across the line becomes more daring and the, the crowd believed more and more. He calls out below, who believes I can cross this line? And they say, we do. And they cheer and he does it and they applaud. And he says, who believes I can run across this line? They say, we do. And they cheer and they applaud when he does it. He says, who believes I can flip across this line? They say, we do, and they cheer, and he does it. He goes over to the side, and he gets a wheelbarrow. Who believes I can push this across the line? They say, we do, they cheer, and he stops. And they're all wondering, what is he waiting on? And when they get just quiet enough, he says, can I have a volunteer to get in the wheelbarrow? <laughs> and nobody moves. See, they believed as long as it didn't cost them anything. They loved the performance. They cheered the sign. They wondered at the feet. But when it came time to trust, see, there's a word that gets at the heart of biblical belief. When it came time to trust, belief ran thin. And so it was for the people of Jesus' day, amazed at his signs, but that's as far as they went. And notice verse 23 says, there were many people like this. Reminds me of Matthew 7, where Jesus says, many on judgment day will be deceived in a false faith and say, Lord, didn't I do all of these things in your name? And he will turn away from them and say, I never knew you even though you believed in me. Oh, brothers and sisters, as a pastor looking at you and many of you professing faith, and listen, one of the reasons why I prayed at the beginning of this sermon, my first prayer was, if there's true, genuine faith in this room, I pray the Spirit of God puts a shield around you and that His Spirit is confirming with your spirit that you're a child of God. But as a pastor who loves you dearly, it is a great fear of mine that I would preach to you every week and that you would die in a deceived faith. Jesus says many people will 
So I ask you solemnly today, are you part of the many who are happy to be amazed by Jesus, happy to go along with Bible Belt culture, happy to have Jesus as a part of your life, but never trust him to be your life? Question number four. I need to speed up here. How did Jesus know their faith was defective? <clears throat> I mean, they believe and he turns away from, how did he know? Well, I mean, it's really quite simple. Verse 24, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus didn't need anyone to guard him like you know, Jesus, be careful. Don't give away your heart too soon as if he's just an immature teenager who's obsessed with attention. No, Jesus wasn't impressed with the fanfare. He knew it was fluff. He didn't need anyone to warn him about the hearts of humans. He already knew. The text says he knew what was in man. The text that Pastor Will read earlier from Jeremiah 17 talked about what's in man. The heart is desperately sick. The question the text then says, who can understand it? And it's a rhetorical question meant to say, you nor I can understand the wickedness of our human hearts. But then Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I the Lord search the heart, test the mind to give every man according to his ways. And this is exactly what Jesus does. And this was a sign in and of itself. Yahweh knows the heart of man. Yahweh knows the mind of man. And Jesus says, I don't need anyone to tell me about you people because I know what's in man. And he knew what was in them. That's how he knew. That's how he knew he didn't entrust himself to them. So as I meditated on this text this week, it got me thinking. These people believed but it was a defective belief, a belief that was rejected by Jesus. So it got me thinking, what are some common types of defective belief? Which is my fifth question. What are the common types of defective beliefs of today? I don't wanna scare you, I'll do these quickly. But I have six defective beliefs that we need to be aware of. Number one, easy belief. Easy belief. The one who possesses an easy belief basically assents to a list of intellectual facts about Jesus. It has no bearing on their life. It's the type of belief I referenced from James chapter 2 of the demons earlier. You can hand the demons your favorite systematic theology and they believe it's all true. The problem is they don't love it. They hate it. They acknowledge the truthfulness of it, but it doesn't spur commitment or allegiance in them. Instead, they continue in rebellion. For the one li living with an easy belief, often labeled easy believism, it's often said that the person had a moment in his life when he chose to believe. And many times people can remember when that decision happened. Someone presented the facts of the gospel. Jesus lived as God's son. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. And the question is presented, do you believe this? And all you have to do is say yes. And your eternity is set. 
And even if the person is hesitant, if they respond yes with an easy belief in intellectualism, it's counted as conversion. No evident turning from sin, no change of desires, no turning of affections toward Christ, just intellectual assent. I believe these facts, like the sun is hot, the, the earth is round. Do you believe Jesus died for you? Yes, now I'm set for eternity. I can live my life like hell. If you accept the facts of Jesus while leaving no room for him to change your life, Jesus will turn away from you. Number two, escape hell belief. The person who believes in this way, escape hell belief, is only in it for escaping hell. And maybe he wouldn't say that, but it's on his mind. I mean, you mean to tell me that I, if I believe in this person that when I die, I won't spend my eternity in everlasting torment? Yes, who's gonna turn that down? <laughs> Sign me up. This is the type of logic that leads some to say, well, it doesn't cost you anything. Just put the fire insurance card in your wallet and on the final day, you'll just have it. This is like the rich man who goes to hell in Luke chapter 16. He's in the torture of the flames. And what does he call out for? Just one drop of water. And I don't even care who gives it to me. Just hang the hand over, let the water flow, and just let one drip reach my tongue. I just don't want hell. If Jesus is simply saving you from hell and nothing else, he will turn away from you. Number three, you have easy belief, you have escape hell belief. Number three, expected belief. This was the belief of Judas. It's a belief you have because it's what is expected of you. I mean, all the other 11 disciples believe. I guess I should too. I guess I should go through the motions too. I guess I should say the right stuff too, do the right stuff too, expect it of me too. So yeah, I guess I will believe too. How many here would believe because it's what your family expects and it's just a lot cleaner just to do it too? So kids in the room, I want to talk to you kids. There's going to come a point in your life where you have to decide, why do I go to church? You may not even be thinking about it right now. I, I go to my mom and dad. We just, we go to church. There will come a point in your life where you have to think, am I going this morning? And why am I going? Like when you go off to college, when you get your first job and you're off on your own, do you go because the parents expect you to? Or do you go because you love Jesus? Do you say what you say, do what you do, believe what you believe? Well, simply because that's what everyone expects. Jesus will turn away from you.
Number four, easy belief, escape hell belief, expected belief. Number four, emotional belief. Somewhere today, there's a church service happening and the lights are just right. The music is just soft enough. The invitation is extended in just the right way with just the right people moving at just the right time and someone will respond in the emotion of the event. The friend goes, so I go. It's the emotional high at summer camp, the perfect setting of the revival meeting. All the factors come together and you find yourself on an emotional high that carries you for a season. It's like the parable of the soils that Jesus tells. Some seeds fall on certain grounds and at first it springs up like it's a promising plant. But soon the plant dies because the conditions change. Some of you may have made a decision a long time ago and if you're honest, you would have to admit that it was a decision that came more from emotion of the setting than the moving of the spirit. And since then, your life has looked exactly the same. No new desires, life full of sin, same old self, but you hang on to an emotional memory. Jesus will turn away from you. Number five, exclusive belief. Exclusive belief. What I mean by this is you're the type that just privatizes your faith. It's just all about me and God. The type that says, I don't need church. I don't need religious routines. I don't even need your belief system of the Bible. It's just me and God. This is the type of person when they're questioned, what do you believe? They claim it doesn't really matter. I know I know God. They chart their own course. They make all their own system, all built on exclusive belief of what Josh Turner sings in an old country song. We're like two peas in a pod, me and God. And they don't need anyone or anything else. So don't question me. Jesus will turn away from you. And number six, the final one. Easy belief, escape hell belief, expected belief, emotional belief, exclusive belief. Number six, emergency belief. This is the belief that Jesus will show up to be my savior when I most need him and only that. When I lose my job, when my child dies, when my spouse is diagnosed with cancer, when everything goes bad and the emergency hits, that's the only time God hears me. And the person has no problem with this because God revolves around their life and it's just, he's there to serve them. So when emergency hits, he's there and then goes away until another emergency comes. If you only call on Jesus, if you only think of Jesus, if you only have time for Jesus, when the emergency comes, Jesus will turn away from you. Brothers and sisters, it's a question, a sobering question we must ask ourselves. Why do I want Jesus? That's an assumption. Do I want Jesus? Is he there for easy belief, escape hell belief? Do you believe because it's what's expected or it's what happened when it was emotional? Is it a belief that's exclusive to you only, an emergency plan for your life? Don't be mistaken. The gospel is simple. True faith avoids hell. Jesus does affect our emotions. He is personal. He is with us in the hard times. He should transform us externally. But Jesus knows when he's being used. He knows 
when he's being received for his signs and not cherished as a savior. Because as the text says, he sees all people's hearts. I'm closing with this, but that is a stirring question. Do you realize that Jesus sees every crevice of your heart this morning? My final question is this, question six. What is true saving belief? Now, the longer answer is given over the rest of this gospel of John. I believe John puts this section here because the rest of his gospel, he's explaining what true faith looks like. And I don't have time to give it to you all this morning. And so I'll give you the nice preacher answer and say, keep coming back because this is where we're going. But I cannot give you a sermon that stirs questions of defective belief without ending with what does true belief look like? And so I, I close with these final thoughts. What does genuine belief look like? First, genuine faith means trusting Jesus as Savior. Now, I'm, I'm choosing to use the word trust because I don't think it carries as much baggage as I unpacked with belief earlier. Belief is a good word. I'm choosing trust right now. Genuine faith means trusting Jesus as Savior. Jesus' main work Please hear me. His main work was not to come and perform signs to amaze you. His main work was to come to save you from your sin. And the signs he performed pointed to the fact that he's the one that could save you from your sins. And so as people would receive him as a great sign performer, they needed more so to believe him, receive him, trust him as their savior, the one who went to the cross the one who took the shame of the cross and the penalty for sin, not his own, but for our sin. And, and then on the third day, rose from the dead. They needed to trust that Jesus did that for me. Even if he never gives me anything else, he's given me the cross. And I trust it's for me. Do you see Jesus as your savior today? Do you trust him like you're trusting that chair to hold you up right now? Is everything you have in life banked on Jesus being true? That's genuine faith. But genuine faith also means trusting in Jesus as Lord. Not just to be someone who saves you from my sin. Oh, thank you, he got me out of jail. He does, but the one who I now turn away from my sin, I stop clinging to my sin and now I turn and I cling to Jesus as my, my cherished king who rules over me. I happily forsake sin so I can happily pursue righteousness in him. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Remember, Jesus said, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy. It's a call to die. Die to self, die to sin, and live to life in him. Two more quickly. Genuine faith is trusting Jesus as Savior. Genuine faith is trusting Jesus as Lord. Genuine faith means trusting Jesus as personally known. Who are the types of people Jesus entrusts himself to? He tells us in John chapter 10, verse 14, he says, I am a good shepherd. I know my own, my own know 
me. Do you hear the personal nature of knowing Jesus there? To be a true believer in Jesus is to personally know him. Not know about him, but to know him. Would you say this morning that you know Jesus as your own? And then finally, genuine faith means trusting Jesus as personally loved. At the end of John's gospel, there's a beautiful scene where Jesus is having breakfast with Peter. Peter, the man who denied Jesus. And as they're over the breakfast, Jesus asks him three questions. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Brothers and sisters, has Jesus changed your affections? Put your name in the blank. Do you love Jesus? Not what he can do for you, not the signs he performs in front of you. Do you love him? Now, I've done a terrible preacher mistake in saying I'm closing with this like three times. I promise you this is what I'm closing with. We need to be, we need to be careful. Please hear this. We need to be careful not to turn that list into a to-do list. Like, if I just love him more, if I just trust him more, if... I just follow him more, then I'll earn being with him. This is not a to-do list. This is a characteristic list of what true faith is. It's, it's characteristic is, is trusting. It's do you love him? Do you know him? But then the second thing we need to be cautious of here, we make a great error in thinking we can accomplish that ourselves. Like, you know, I don't really love Jesus and I don't really know him, but by George this week, I'm gonna do it. There's a reason why John 3 follows this, where Jesus is gonna say, you wanna believe in me in the right way? It's only a work that I'm gonna do. I can't wait to preach John 3. Do you, do you know him? Do you trust him? Let's pray.